Okay, Houston, we've had a problem here. Say again, please. Uh, Houston, we've had a problem. Until the 1980s, a lot of what we bought was made here from companies based here in the U.S. Now, not so much. Sure, we still make plenty of stuff, but there are a lot of things we used to make here, entire categories of stuff, that we just don't anymore. From what I understand, similar situations have played out in the U.K. and other countries, too. Why is that? What happened? I'm going to do my best not to sound like that grumpy old man sitting in a room yelling at the TV. We'll see how I do. Practically any intro to economics course will tell you that there are two inputs into the production process, capital and labor, and that you should assume capital and labor move freely and that buyers and sellers are rational in the ideal economy. All other things being equal, companies will spend their money where they can get the best bang for their buck, and people will go work where they can make the most money. In practice, that's obviously not the case, at least not the second part. Moving across the country for work is a monumental undertaking, let alone all the structural obstacles to relocating to an entirely different country. Of course, many of the assumptions they tell you to make in your first semester of economics are just abstracts to help students understand the basics. And while labor doesn't move as freely in practice as it does in theory, money kind of does. And that may be part of the problem. Production will eventually move to where costs are the lowest. Notice I said costs there and not prices. Beyond wage rates and material prices, there are intangible costs associated with making various production choices. Locating your factory far from a supplier or in a different city, state, or country from your engineers or design team could put your company at a strategic disadvantage. Entire departments are dedicated to optimizing the production mix, and companies do a pretty good job analyzing and forecasting costs, at least in the short to intermediate term. But it seems like they don't quite figure in the true long-term costs of certain decisions into their thinking. And maybe we as individuals don't either. In the 1950s, a single income was enough to support a family. Now it's much more common that both parents have to work outside the home to make the numbers work. Now there's definitely something to be said for lifestyle creep. The average single-family home in 1950 was around 1,000 square feet, and now the average is more than double that at about 2,500. I have opinions on that that I'll reserve for another video if I can do it without sounding too crotchety, but there's a lingering sense that things have gotten worse. It seems like the middle class is shrinking, and it kind of is. Historically, the foundation of the middle class has been manufacturing. The U.S. auto industry played a fundamental role in growing and sustaining the middle class for decades, as did hundreds of other consumer goods industries. And as the auto industry and manufacturing in general have shrunk, so has the U.S. middle class. It's remarkable how interconnected we all are and how structural changes ripple through the economy. As foreign competition increased throughout the latter half of the 20th century, and with some help from rampant inflation in the 70s and 80s, it seems like a lot of companies started competing on price rather than quality. And that meant moving production overseas in search of lower costs. Once one company did that, everyone else had to do it to remain competitive, or at least that seems to be what they thought. There's a way to look at this as not all bad. The fact that stuff has become cheaper has probably increased the standard of living, what were once luxury goods are now accessible to someone on even a moderate income, and incomes haven't had to grow as much because of the availability of inexpensive options. Of course, inexpensive can also mean cheap crap. I'm not trying to go off on a xenophobic rant or imply companies want things to wear out fast so you'll have to replace them. In most cases, the people in factories manufacturing the things we import are doing their best, and they're producing goods and services to meet a price point, one dictated by the companies that contracted them to do the work in the first place. 
When something breaks or wears out faster than you think it should, cost-cutting is a more likely culprit than intentional crapification. Now, of course, cost-cutting is itself a form of corporate greed, or at least hubris, but that's outside the scope of this video. You can argue that battle in the comments. Now, there's also an argument to be made, and I'm sure someone made it years ago when production started to move overseas, that diffusion of technology from higher-cost areas to lower-cost ones is a good thing. Basically, that it's only natural that something that used to be complicated eventually becomes easier to replicate elsewhere, and lower costs benefit everyone. Okay, fine. I kind of get the invented here, made elsewhere argument, especially when it's the low technology stuff that moves offshore. What's unsettling is how we've stopped leading in areas we used to dominate. Most importantly, high technology. For a long time, even after final assembly of high-tech devices had moved offshore, the higher cost items, CPUs, GPUs, and other chips were still made here. But now we don't even have the capability to make the latest chips here. Apple and others have to source the newest chips from Taiwan. And nothing against Taiwan, the way TSMC and others have dominated the market and built up industry-wide trust such that multiple competing manufacturers trust them with their chip designs deserves admiration. But relying on a single foreign source in an area with legitimate geopolitical risk is a little, yeah, unsettling. Sure, the world would go on without a new iPhone if we couldn't get chips for a while, but we've seen how fragile just-in-time supply chains can be across the board. I suppose it's no surprise to anyone now how interconnected industries are, but it seems like we keep forgetting. And market leaders keep losing ground to upstarts when they forget how to truly compete. Sears Roebuck was America's largest retailer for decades, the true everything store way before Amazon. Being the largest retailer, Sears was likewise the largest customer for their suppliers, their fates often moving in lockstep with Sears. Western Forge, who produced Sears Craftsman screwdrivers and who was for quite some time the largest American manufacturer of screwdrivers, closed up shop in 2020. Waterloo Industries, who made Craftsman Tool Storage, is a shell of its former self. As Sears circled the drain, the ripples touched American manufacturing far and wide. Eddie Lambert may have done more to doom American manufacturing than any single person in decades, if the allegations creditors made during bankruptcy proceedings are true. The bottom line is that what used to be made by your theoretical neighbor is now made somewhere else, and now our neighbors aren't doing so well. We bemoan the decline of cities, the loss of jobs, the disappearing middle class and income inequality, and politicians on both sides of the aisle love to tell us it's someone else's fault and what we need is government intervention. Ironically, well-meaning regulation has probably sped up the offshoring process rather than slowed it down. Minimum wage laws, labor regulation, environmental protection legislation, all things that should theoretically have a positive effect on improving our lives may actually, in practice, ultimately make them worse. I'm not saying we should just let companies belch toxic chemicals into the air or demand 14-hour days without overtime. In fact, I'm all for sensible standards. What I'm saying is what people say they want, what they vote for, and what their actions demonstrate, what they are willing to pay for, are two different things. American consumers are, as a group, ridiculously price-sensitive. Also, it's harder and harder for the average person to tell the difference between a well-engineered, well-made, quality product and an inferior one when you're sitting and looking at them in the store. Samsung appliances look great on the showroom floor, and contrasted with similar models from other manufacturers may seem like a good value. Why pay a little more for brand A when this Samsung looks just as good and has more features? But if reviews, personal experience, and the allegations made in lawsuits against the company are any indication, they're much more trouble-prone. 
And when it's impossible for most people to perceive a quality difference when they buy something, why would they pay more? The U.S. still has arguably one of the most productive workforces in the world, but we can't match developing countries on price. Mike Rowe, the dirty jobs guy, told a story once about working with a prominent jeans manufacturer, and he suggested they do a line of made-in-America jeans. They said not only had they considered it, they'd tested it and found they couldn't sell them profitably. Apparently, if you put made-in-USA jeans next to identical pairs made overseas that sold for just a few dollars less, people wouldn't buy the made-in-USA jeans. Even when the price differential was as small as a single cent, when the made-in-USA jeans were a penny more expensive, they still couldn't move the product. Not until they were the same price or less would they sell in any appreciable quantity. Consumer spending is the backbone of the economy, so ultimately the biggest power we have is our ability to vote with our feet and our wallets. The next time you buy something, think about what your dollar is voting for. What's important to you? Until next time, we don't have a problem, we've got an opportunity. Thank you.